Our Old Testament reading this morning is Habakkuk chapter 3, page 827 in the Pew Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk here is reflecting on the suffering that Israel has gone through, the affliction they've gone through. But he closes this chapter with a wonderful hymn of faith in God's goodness at all times, always, even in affliction. Habakkuk chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianot. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, Remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence, and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and He will make me walk on my high hills. Our New Testament reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples 
to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask His blessing on it. O Lord our God, we ask that the meditation of all our hearts, the words of my mouth, would now be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. What kind of a church do we want to be? What, what kind of a church do we want to be? What, what, uh, what kind of a, uh, what, what things do we want to characterize our life as a church? What, how do you answer that question? Maybe you've been thinking over that question. We're at a, uh, a transition point in the life of our church. So maybe you have been thinking, what, what kind of church should we be? What kind of church should I be praying we would be? Uh, what sh- kind of church should I be uh, helping us be? How do you answer that question? Maybe you say, I'd like our church to be a, a, a church that has, has a tight-knit community or a church where there's uh, that, that's welcoming and loving, or, or a church that's committed to solid Reformed theology, right? And, and those are all good things. There's things we should be. But here in First Thessalonians 1, we see something else that we should desire that our church should be. It's this. We should be a church that rejoices in the midst of suffering. The church in Thessalonica is a standout church. They're a, they're a model church. Paul makes that clear here as he's writing these words. This church is exemplary. He holds them up. He holds them in high regard. Not because they're a big church, not because they're a, 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 a church that's been around a long time, uh, but because this, because they have joyfully embraced the gospel, even in the face of fierce opposition. And the, the way this happened, the way the church in Thessalonica did this was so remarkable that Paul says all of Greece is hearing about this. Macedonia, Achaia, the whole region has heard about how this church here in Thessalonica responded to the suffering, the opposition that they went through. And, and it's so remarkable that wherever Paul is going, as he's continuing to travel on in his missionary journeys, he shows up, say, at Athens, and someone there comes up to him and says, I already heard. You don't even have to tell me what happened in Thessalonica. The news reached here before you did. How they, how they responded to the gospel. How they loved it. How they ate it up. How they, how they embraced it. Even in the face of much suffering. The, the picture we get here of this church in, in, in these verses here in 6-10 through 10 is of a church, as one commentator puts it, that is bursting at the seams with the Gospel. This is, church has embraced the Gospel with joy. They've been filled with the Gospel so that, so that they can't contain it any longer. And as, as affliction comes and as affliction hits them, rejoicing comes out because they're so filled 
with hope in Christ. The affliction doesn't blow out the flame of their witness. It fans the flame of their witness. And so my desire, brothers and sisters, my prayer, and and I, I long for this to be our prayer as a church, is that we also would be a church like that, bursting at the seams with the gospel. That, that we would be a model church, not so that people hear about us and know about us, but so that God is lifted up and glorified. So that, so that the witness that we have might burn brighter. So that, that as affliction comes, it fans the flame of our witness and makes it brighter and clearer and more compelling. That's my prayer. So let's dive into this text together. Unpack this together. Starting in verse, verse 6. And our first heading is this, welcoming the gospel. Welcoming the gospel. Verse 6. Paul starts in verse 6 by describing the way the Thessalonians joyfully embrace the gospel in the face of opposition. As he starts, he's, he's continuing the same theme. Remember, he started the letter with thanksgiving, giving thanks for what God's doing in this church. He's reminding the Thessalonians, everything here is God's work. It's all his work that he's doing. He thanks God for working in them faith, love, and hope, the three great Christian virtues. He rejoices. uh, He gives thanks that they're the elect of God, the beloved of God. And then in verse 6, he goes on to give some more evidence of their election. And that's what we're seeing here. Verse 6, he says this, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, you became followers of us. You became copycats of us. You saw what we were doing and you copied it. They saw, how, they saw how Paul, Silas, and Timothy carried themselves and spoke to each other and lived together. They saw how Paul, Silas, and Timothy endured so much suffering for the sake of Christ, but didn't murmur and complain about it. But they, they labored hard and hopefully. And beyond this, the Thessalonians, not just, they didn't just see Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They saw beyond them to the original Christ himself. He's, he's, the, he's the, 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 the copy that they're following. They see Christ as Paul uh, speaks the gospel to them. They see Christ's life, the, the, the way he lived. And the Thessalonian church says, we're going to copy that. that. That's our model. We're going to follow that. That's how we learn best, isn't it? By having a model to follow, a copy, someone to come along and say, here, let me, let me show you how to do this. Let me, let me show you how to, how to hold this, do this, whatever it is. Paul comes to, Timothy, uh, comes to Thessalonica. He says, Thessalonican church, let me show you how to be a Christian. And, and they, they follow his, co- his example and they follow the one he's copying, Jesus himself. What exactly though? So they're following this copy. What are they copying? What's the lifestyle that they're copying? We see it in verse 6 so clearly. It says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? By receiving the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So they copy Paul and they copy Christ by rejoicing in affliction as they embrace the word. We see this, right? We see this in Paul. He does this. We we see it in Acts all over the place. He goes, he preaches the gospel in, in Lystra, for example. He, he, he gets stoned and left for dead. He gets up and he goes on and he preaches in the next town. He goes on with the work joyfully. 
Um, he, gets, he goes to Philippi. He gets, he gets thrown in prison. What does he do? He sings hymns of praise to God in prison. He gets out of prison. What does he do? He goes to Thessalonica and he preaches there. He gets run out of town. What's he do? He goes on to Berea and joyfully preaches the gospel there. He gets run out of Berea. He goes to Athens and does it again. The Thessalonians see that, that he, is, he is rejoicing even in the midst of his suffering because of this gospel that he has. And even more so, right? It wasn't just that they, they're copying Paul as he does this. They're copying the Lord Jesus. He does this so much more even than Paul. How did Jesus suffer? Did he complain? Did he, did he murmur and grumble against God? No, he suffered with joy. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We read about this earlier in our confession of faith, right? About how Christ suffered in his estate of humiliation. His whole life, from beginning to the cross, from birth to the cross, is humiliation, suffering, affliction. And he did it all with joy in the Lord. Paul says, Thessalonians, I see you imitating me in this. I see you imitating Christ in this as you respond to affliction with joy. And that's our model too. That's, that's what we're to copy as well, isn't it, loved ones? We are to follow this copy. How do we know how to live the Christian life? Paul says, watch me. Christ says, watch me. Copy what I do. Like this. Suffer with joy. Our culture really treats suffering as though it's a, a weird thing. It's an aberration. It's a glitch in the system. It's a, it's a bug that needs to be fixed. But we shouldn't be surprised when affliction and suffering comes. Right? Sh- sh- think about it this way. Should Christ have been surprised when he suffered? Should Christ have, have been surprised when suffering came to him on earth? No, of course not. He, that's why he came. This is his estate of humiliation as we confessed together earlier. It's only after that that he goes on to glory. And, and we are following his pattern. We're in union with that Christ. So should we be surprised when we suffer in our estate of humiliation? Suffering is what we signed up for, actually. It's par for the course. So don't be surprised. No, Paul says, rejoice in it like I did, like Christ did. Uh, rejoicing in suffering. The, the Thessalonians aren't, um, they're not celebrating their pain. They're not, they're not masochists here. They're not, they're not saying, oh, hooray, we're getting slandered and shame. This is wonderful. That's not what they're doing at all. Uh, the, the pain of it hurts. The, the rejection from their family and friends and neighbors hurts. The lies that are being told about them, they hurt. But the Thessalonians are saying, we are glad, despite all that, in the midst of all that, because of what we have in the gospel now. How is, this, how is this possible? How is that kind of joy in the midst of that kind of suffering possible? There's nothing more unnatural than that, is there? To rejoice in suffering? There's nothing more contrary to the way we feel wired. Right? What, what do we automatically feel like doing when we, even if it's something minor, right? The car breaks down, you get the flu. Is your gut instinct to rejoice? No, it's to, it's to whine, to gripe, to grumble. And then bigger things come, a terminal illness, loss of a loved one, getting your reputation smeared. Do we rejoice? No, that's not, that's not our natural inclination at all. It's a supernatural thing to rejoice in suffering. That's why Paul says here, we do this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
the idea there, the, the sense of the Greek, is the joy that's produced by the Holy Spirit. We can't produce this. We can't manufacture this in our own hearts. Only the Spirit can produce this kind of joy in us. How does He do it? What does the Spirit use to do that? Again, it's right there in verse 6. Having received the Word in much affliction. So that's where their joy is located. In receiving the Word. That the Word there is like, is, is, means welcoming the Word. Right, the, 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 they've, they've welcomed the word about Jesus. They've welcomed the gospel into their hearts, into their homes, into their lives. They can't get enough of it. And this gospel of Christ is so valuable to them that whatever they had to lose, whatever they had to suffer for the sake of it, it was more than worth it. Right? Think of that parable Jesus tells about the pearl merchant who finds the one pearl of great price of great price and it's precious beyond all else and he sells everything he has to gain that one pearl. That's what the Thessalonians have done. They've, they've gained Christ. Anything else they lose uh, pales in comparison with what they gain in Him. That's how they rejoice. So the question for us, loved ones, is are we, are you and I, welcoming the Gospel? Is the Gospel the honored guest in your house? and your home? Is the gospel welcome for you? The great Puritan Samuel Rutherford writes that we should be greedy for grace. Be greedy for the gospel. Welcome the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel. Embrace the gospel, the word of Christ. Eat it up. Take it in until we're bursting at the seams with it. The result of, of doing that, right? the result of that steady, embracing, welcoming of God's word and the gospel together is a glorious, widespread witness as we, as we rejoice in our affliction. That's where Paul goes next. Let's talk about the widespread witness the Thessalonians have. Because of how they've responded to affliction, rejoicing in the gospel by the power of the Spirit, they have a widespread witness. So our second heading this morning is thundering the gospel. Verses 7 through 8, thundering the gospel. Notice how Paul starts. Verse 7. He says this. So that... So this is what's happening because of your rejoicing and affliction as you receive the gospel. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Here's the result of their rejoicing in, uh, in the gospel even as they suffered. It's, they have a widespread witness. A witness to Christians, encouraging Christians and beyond Christians as we'll see following. So in, in verse 7, we're told the Thessalonians have become an example. So they were copying Paul. They were copying Christ. Now they've become the ones to copy. They've become the example. They've become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's, that's the, the whole region that they're in. Um, Thessalonica is actually the capital of Macedonia. This is in modern-day Greece. It's, it's basically the northern and southern parts of Greece. It includes cities like Corinth, and Athens. All the churches in this region have heard about what happened in Thessalonica, how they suffered yet rejoiced as they embraced the gospel. And so they became a model church to the whole region. But their witness didn't just stop uh, with these other churches and, and with this region. It goes on, Paul goes on in verse 8. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place 
your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. We see a couple things here. First, their witness is not only a witness of action. So we saw in verse 7, their example of joy and suffering because of the gospel, that's gone out. Their example has gone out. But their witness isn't just those actions. It's also a witness that speaks. It's a witness of words. Verse 8, Paul says, From you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. So people from Thessalonica and the news about Thessalonica is going out. So the the believers there are are spreading God's word. Paul says this, this word has sounded forth. This is a rare word in the New Testament. It's the only place this Greek word's used in the New Testament. And it means that it thundered or trumpeted, right? It, 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 it reverberated out to the whole surrounding region. Paul says here he can't go anywhere in this area without people having already heard from the Thessalonians about their faith and about the gospel that they are trusting in. They are putting him out of a job, he's saying. He says, your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Again, one of the commentators describes the church there in Thessalonica like this. The new Christians in Thessalonica could not keep a low profile about their faith. It was bursting at the seams and could not be contained. Could we say that about how we proclaim the gospel? They were bursting at the seams with it. It cannot be contained. The second thing we see here is the relationship between the Thessalonians' suffering and their witness. This is the reason why the gospel is thundering out from Thessalonica. People have heard their story. People see how these believers are responding to hatred and opposition. And people are compelled by it. That's so often how God works, isn't it? What's more compelling than, than um, seeing how God's grace is at work in a situation of great suffering? Right? Think of the missionary stories or the, the stories of martyrs. There are so many of them. Or, um, as, I, as I thought over this, I thought of uh, Joni Erickson Tata. Perhaps you've heard her story. Right? She's, as a teenager, paralyzed by a, a diving accident. And then, and then she wrestles with the providence of God, comes to accept it and rejoice in Him. And then God uses her story. And she goes and she, and she speaks powerfully about the Gospel. And she writes about the Gospel. And she has a ministry for those with disabilities to encourage them to accept God's providence and, and rest in the hope of the Gospel. And all, none of that would have happened if she hadn't rejoiced in suffering by the Holy Spirit's work in her. Or think of you know, a story like Jim Elliott's story, murdered for the gospel as he's bringing it to the natives in Ecuador. And then his wife goes and brings the gospel to those same people. It's a compelling witness, isn't it? When, when, when we respond to suffering by the grace of God with joy. But you don't have to be a Joni Erickson Tata or Jim Elliott for this. When I was in high school, our, our youth group, used to go to the nursing home down the street, Eastside Rehabilitation Center, right down the road from our church in Bangor. Once a month, we'd go, and on Sunday afternoon, we would have a service with them. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd sing some songs, and the youth leader would uh, share a brief, brief message from God's Word with them. But there was one lady there who was severely handicapped. Um, she was wheelchair-bound. Uh, she had very limited mobility uh, for her head, for her arms. She couldn't speak very clearly. Uh, but she loved Christ. 
And it, it, it just kind of spilled out from her that she loved the Lord Jesus. And she was always delighted to see us, and she would always talk about how much Christ loved her and how blessed she was. She didn't draw attention to herself in this. She wasn't trying to, you know, seeking attention through this. It was just that she was so glad in God. And it just spilled out from her. And, and it made you jealous to have what she had. It made you feel like between the two of you, she was the one better off because of her delight in the Lord Jesus and her sweet, close knowledge of Him. It's such a witness, right? Brothers and sisters, whatever the cross that Christ has given you to bear, maybe it's something heavy right now, maybe it's not, but whatever it is, consider the example of the Thessalonians here. Rejoicing as they embrace the gospel in the midst of their pain and suffering. Let us, by God's grace, strive to do the same and see how God, by His grace, will use that to enlarge our witness. So this is what we see, the gospel thundering forth from Thessalonica. But what's the content? What's the, what's the content of the message? What news is, is spreading exactly? And, and, and that's where we go in our final point. We see the Thessalonians are living by the gospel and they're thundering out this message that has two parts. Here's our third point, living by the gospel. Verse 9 and verse 10. The first part of the message that the Thessalonians are thundering out is how they turned. This is the first part of how they're living by the gospel. They are turning. Verse 9. Look with me at verse 9 if you have it. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. As we said earlier, everywhere Paul goes, he shows up and they say, we've already heard it from the Thessalonians. And this is what they've heard. Repentance. Turning. The Thessalonians were living lives. They were, they were going one direction. Paul comes. He preaches to them. And it's like they slammed on the brakes. Pulled the U-turn. And they're going in the other direction. They've turned. They've repented. They've repented from uh, living towards the Greek gods, the, the Roman gods, the, the always popular imported gods from Egypt. And, and they've turned and from all that to living everything towards the Lord. The gospel changed their entire direction of their lives. They didn't serve dead, false gods anymore. They served, as Paul says here, the living, true God. What are the gods of our culture? So the Thessalonians set us an example here as well, right? They, they turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. What are the gods that are the gods of our culture? And are, what are our idols? Tim Keller describes idols like this. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, value. I'll feel significant and secure. See, our culture says, well, we don't, we don't, uh, we're, we're a secular culture, right? We don't have gods. We don't bow down at altars and go to temples. But, but we do, don't we? Our culture does this nonstop. We worship 
that we worship all the time, entertainment and comfort and ease and security and safety, all these things, pleasure, power, control, influence, all these things. It's rampant, isn't it? Now, if you, had, if you had gone to Thessalonica a few weeks after Paul showed up and looked at the lives of the Thessalonian believers, they would have looked markedly different from the lives of those around them. They wouldn't be going to those temples of false gods anymore. They wouldn't be living for those gods anymore. Could someone say the same of us? That our church looks markedly different in the orientation of our lives? That we're not serving the gods of our culture? That we've turned from them? Now, the, the idolatries of our culture aren't as obvious, right, perhaps, to us as going to the, the, uh, the temple of the false god and offering a sacrifice. That's, that's blatant and obvious, and it's easy to see the difference. But, but, but uh, the, uh, the idols of our culture are, are subtle, sophisticated. They promise us things only God can give, significance, safety, security. He's the living and true God. And so I think we, we still need to wrestle with this question and ask ourselves, what are the idols that I have turned from? What are the idols I'm continuing to try to turn from? Because if, if you can't think of what idols you have turned from or are trying, by God's grace, to turn from, then perhaps it's a warning sign that we're, that we're unaware of what we're worshiping. Right? Be, be aware, loved ones, of what your heart worships, of where, where, where your life is oriented and directed. Don't be blind to lingering idolatry in your heart. Turn to the living and true God. Now, brothers and sisters, given the context of this verse, right, we've been speaking in the sermon more broadly about embracing the gospel in the face of suffering and doing that with joy. I would also say this. It's only when God is our God and not any other gods, not any idols, that we can actually do this. I think that's why Paul brings this up here. This is at the root of why the Thessalonian Christians are able to have a joy produced by the Spirit uh, uh, even as they are suffering. It's because they have God as their God, not the false gods that they had before. So they can lose everything else and still have God and still have everything they need. They can lose their, their families, their jobs, their, their friends and neighbors, their, their social ties and support, but they have been brought into a relationship with the Lord God. And so, even though losing all those things hurts, they have what they need in God. They worship the Lord alone, and so they will have joy, a joy that can't be taken from them. That's, that's verse 9. Let's go on now to verse 10. So we've seen how the Thessalonians are turning. Let's also look now at how they are waiting. Here's verse 10. The Thessalonians are waiting. Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians are not only a turning church, they're a waiting church. They're waiting eagerly. They're waiting expectantly. Kids, picture how you wait in December for Christmas Day to come. Right. All your hope is fixed on it. Uh, on those presents wrapped up up in mom and dad's closet. Um, uh, I remember waiting, you know, probably most 
most sharply, right, when I was engaged, and Eva was in Chicago finishing up her last semester, and I was in Bangor. Um, and all my attention, all my focus was on the day when she would get home, and then if we, a few weeks later, we would be married. I would, I would, I would, you know, my whole life was oriented that way, towards that date when she would come home and, and we would be married. Everything I did, I did with, with, with that in mind, that I'm waiting for her to come. I was expectant and eager. My whole life lived in the light of that. That's the way the Thessalonians are living. Their, their life is, is totally oriented towards heaven. They're waiting for the Lord Jesus. They're waiting for Christ. We're told two things about Jesus here. As, as this, is, this is the one they're waiting for so expectantly and eagerly. First, we read he's the one who's raised from the dead. That's, who, that's, that's, that's why they have this great hope. That's why their eyes are fixed on him. He's the one who's been raised from the dead, who's conquered the grave. Right? Think of them in their suffering and affliction. What better hope can you have? We're waiting for the one who's coming from heaven, who has defeated death, suffering, and evil. The one who sits enthroned in heaven, ruling over all things. They're waiting for the risen Christ. They're also waiting, the verse tells us, for the Jesus who delivers them from the wrath to come. Just a few weeks before the Thessalonians heard the gospel, right? Just a few weeks before that, they were under God's wrath. They were in the flood path, right? The, the, the flood of God's judgment on sin was coming. The fire of hell is coming. But now, no more. They're waiting for the one who delivers them from that wrath. So there they are, this church in Thessalonica, living like someone waiting for their wedding day. All their hope is pinned on Christ's coming, the one who's risen from the dead, the one who delivers them from the wrath that is to come. All their attention is on Him and His coming. All their, um, all, all their love is pinned on Him. Their desire is for Him. And again, loved ones, as we've been saying, is this not what made them able to rejoice in their suffering? Isn't this another aspect of how the Holy Spirit makes them able to rejoice in affliction? They're not enduring hardship uh, because they've uh, pulled their act together and they've got a good stoic attitude. They're enduring hardship because they have something so much better. There's a wonderful picture of this over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Over in chapter 10, uh, the author of the Hebrews describes how the, the, the church that was, he was writing to um, suffered much. They, 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 they were uh, uh, slandered. They were, some of them were put in prison. Some of them had their possessions stolen, plundered, we're told. But the people rejoice. Listen to Hebrews 10.34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew... You yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What a picture, right? Can you imagine, we get home from church this afternoon and your house has been trashed and your stuff's been taken. Maybe there's graffiti on the door cursing you for being a Christian. And you rejoice. Because stuff isn't your God. God is your God. Christ and His coming is your God. That's your possession. That's how the church in Hebrews, uh, that the author of the Hebrews is writing to, is reacting in their suffering. And that's what we see the Thessalonians doing as well. They're waiting for Jesus, risen from the dead, delivering them from the wrath to come. What else can trouble them? So this is how the church in Thessalonica 
lived by the Gospel. They turned from idols and they waited for Christ's coming. That's the Gospel they embraced. That's the Gospel that made them able to suffer joyfully. And that's also, brothers and sisters, the Gospel they thundered forth from Thessalonica. So, this is how they became then a model church. So, how can we become a church of exemplary faith, a church that that thunders out the gospel. Well, follow the copy. Embrace the gospel. Be greedy for grace. Rejoice in suffering. Turn from idols. Wait for Christ. And let's preach, speak, thunder out this gospel. Let's be bursting at the seams with it. Let's pray.